going to talk about that this morning, this idea of God uh, being with us. So we're continuing on in a very short series called God Is. Uh, before we do that, however, I want to talk to you about a, a couple of other uh, issues uh, that are going to be coming up in the new year. We're wrapping up this year very quickly, and so I uh, want to just take this opportunity to spend a few minutes with you guys talking about what's happening in our church early next year. The first thing is the Embrace Grace campaign that we're starting uh, in January. It's a spiritual campaign where we're just going to try to bolster our spiritual walks with God around His grace. And so we're going to be beginning that January 9th, a series on God and grace. is our first one for five weeks. And if you haven't gotten into a small group yet, we're going to give you a chance to sign up over the next couple of weeks. We encourage you to get into a small group to talk about these things that we're going to be going through here on Sunday uh, with a small group of people. So that's the first thing uh, that I want to just mention to you and kind of underline that's uh, happening in the new year. And the second thing is, and this isn't going to affect you guys as much, but we want you to be aware of it, is that uh, for the last 25 years, our church on Sunday morning has had one style of worship and one style only. In other words, in the three main services, we, we, we have what we call a blended style of worship, which means that we're kind of all over the map. Uh, sometimes we have choir and orchestra, and it's more traditional elements. Other times it's more of a rhythm section, which is a nice sophisticated phrase meaning band, and, uh, and things like that. And then uh, other, so we're, sometimes we go from rock, and sometimes we're back over on the Bach side of things. And we did a poll about a year ago of our entire congregation, and we found out that that blend is just enough of a blend to tick off just about everybody. And so <laughs> it's just, there's like something to offend everybody in our blend. And, and so we thought, well, I wonder if that's still working as we move forward. So we're going to try something in the new year that, again, I said, isn't going to affect you guys as much if you stay in this service. And that is we're going to offer uh, three different kinds of worship style beginning on Sunday morning. Look out. We're going we're gonna to take the first service at 8 o'clock, and we're going to make that more traditional. I didn't say completely traditional because we've never been a hymns and organ only church, but it, whereas we might sing one hymn and three choruses in the first service, now we're going to sing maybe two or three hymns with, with a well-known chorus thrown in, still choir and orchestra back. And then what we're going to do is take the 1115 service and we're going to make that more contemporary. You probably guessed that. In other words, we're going to uh, have less choir and orchestra in that service and more just a band driven by uh, modern-day choruses. And, and again, with a well-known hymn thrown in, but probably jazzed up. And then we're going to keep this service for the sake of continuity the way that it's been. So if you, yeah, you can clap at that if you want. Good. Now, here's going to be the real bummer, by the way, and that is that if the other people don't like the other two services, <laughs> guess where they're going to come? And look around, it's already full. So, you know, that's the great risk we're running here is that, you know, if this explodes on us, then that means everybody's going to like flock to the middle hour. And if that happens, we're just going to repent and go back to where we were. So I told the elders when we started this, I said, you know, uh, the senior pastor has a right about every three years to have a really good idea and have it not work. And so that's what we're going to do here. I, I think it'll be a good thing. But if not, then uh, we're, we're adaptable, right? Give me a head nod. We're all flexible. You're actually not, but we're going to think we are. <laughs> and, and that'll be a good thing. So um, pray about that for us as we move on. I'm so excited about what we're talking about these three weeks here at church. The idea of God's sovereignty last week and the idea of Him being with us in Christ this week and next week. So let's bow and pray and we're going to get right on. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you that as we're learning in this series, your goodness and your grace are here because of your sovereignty over our lives 
And as we're going to learn today, because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ into this world and into our lives. And so, God, as we unpack those truths here this morning, I pray that you'd help us understand rightly what your word has said. And then, Lord, may we not be afraid to act upon these things in our daily lives and to be doers of the word, not just hearers. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this church that, Lord, even amidst all of the struggles and issues we have here, that you're building this place to be a beautiful bride of Christ as we band together in the name of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you guys have noticed or not, but there are some people that are bothered by all the commercial hype and the modernization of Christmas in our Western American culture. There are definitely people that are bothered by it. I hear about it every Christmas. They're bothered by the cards, the trees, the gifts, the parties, the shopping, the concerts, the extended family gatherings, the travel, and all the other North American trappings that we have thrown in in the Christmas season. They're bothered by all of this stuff. I mean, even leaving the whole Santa Claus issue out of it, I have known some really good-hearted, very well-meaning Christians over the years who are just bothered by all the commercial and seasonal hype surrounding Christ and Christmas. And though I don't fault people at all for not enjoying all the hype and choosing to avoid it, i got to let you guys know, and this is important for where we're going this morning, that I actually like all the hype and the seasonal joy that we tend to throw in at Christmas time. And the reason that I like it is simple, and that is I think most of us tend to either like or dislike Christmas based upon our past, based upon the traditions or the memories that we have of Christmas past and what our childhood or even what our adolescent age was like. And quite frankly, I have very fond memories from my childhood of Christmas of trimming the tree with my family, of shopping for special gifts for my friends and family, of going to church on Christmas Eve and lighting a candle, waking up Christmas morning and opening presents, and then taking the whole next week off of school, like who likes school when you're a teenager, and then get to watch football all New Year's Day. I've got to ask you, with memories like that, who wouldn't enjoy this season, right? And so I've grown to love the traditions that develop around Christmas time. And it's been neat for me to see my kids start to enjoy similar traditions. Uh, my middle daughter, Abby, is one who, Kim and I just marvel, really loves the traditions that we've de- developed at Christmas. And when we don't do them or even veer from them from just a little bit, she doesn't like it. So we trim our tree. After the day after Thanksgiving, every year, we play Christmas music when we're trimming our tree. And we hang the stockings in certain places around the house. We go to church as a family on Christmas Eve, even though I'm the minister. We pick a service that we can sit at together. Then we go home, and that morning, next morning we wake up and have another whole host of traditions that we have as a family around Christmas time. And my daughter, Abby, has joined in on this love of it, and it actually does my heart good to see her develop similar traditions now that she's becoming an adult. And yet, having said all this, folks, i got to tell you, I do share one thing in common with my friends and my fellow believers who aren't so excited about all the Christmas hype, and that is that the main thing that they are afraid of and even frustrated about is the fact that in the midst of all of the stuff we do at Christmas time, it's so easy to eclipse and even forget what this season is all about. In other words, I too share a fear that in doing all the things that we're accustomed to this type of year, even all the good and relational things, we can easily dilute and even darken to the point of not recognizing anymore the main reason that we have this season, and that is to celebrate and focus on Jesus Christ and his coming into this world. 
And so here is the main challenge I want to give to you this Christmas season as we get down to the short strokes before Christmas. And that is in the midst of all the things that you are doing in your life, remember and prioritize what it is all about. In other words, keep the main thing the main thing. Because this season, folks, was designed for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to pause, reflect, and celebrate, to worship Jesus Christ and Him coming into this world. Again, as I said to you, I loved growing up in America here and celebrating Christmas. One of the traditions that we would do on a regular basis is watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special. How many of you have ever watched that? Let me see a hand raise here. Many of you. Much more than in the first service. That's good. And so the Charlie Brown Christmas special. And one of the things I loved about that, as you remember the plot line, is that Charlie Brown is all bummed out because his Christmas tree is really pathetic and sad and not what he hoped it would be. And everything's kind of gone wrong for him at Christmas. But then the show ends with them doing the Christmas story and Linus coming out, reading the Christmas story about Jesus from Luke chapter 2. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but then he ends the show by looking at Charlie Brown and saying, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I love that phrase. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. It's about Jesus and the coming of the Savior into the world. And so to hammer this point home to us today, I want to spend a few minutes exploring this. And my main point to you for this week and next week is simply this. And that is that God is now with us. And here's the point. It changes everything. That's the understanding we need to latch on to with this truth that the Bible gives us that God is now with us in Jesus, that it has the capacity to change everything positively for our lives. And so look with me, folks, at how the Bible tells us this. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. The angel is speaking to Joseph, Mary's husbands, in a dream, and he says this, Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. He says, And she, Mary, will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, most of us know uh, this story here about Jesus' birth, that a young gal named Mary becomes pregnant, but she is like completely a virgin, so there's been no premarital sex, no other guy in the picture. Both her and Joseph know it. And so Joseph is massively confused and put off by this. And so he thinks to himself that he might as well just call the whole thing off quietly and get on with his life. And yet in a dream, an angel of God appears to him and tells him what is really up. And the angel tells him that this is all part of God's plan. Something predicted 750 years earlier during the time of Isaiah the prophet that a virgin would miraculously conceive and bring a very special person into this world. It's called the virgin birth of Jesus. And that's what's going on here in Matthew chapter 1. And folks, what you need to know is that so many Americans know this story so well that in a poll done a few years ago by the New York Times, they found that Americans are three times more likely to believe in this virgin birth than they are in evolution. Does that surprise you? That surprised me. When I read that poll myself in the New York Times, it cited that 83% of Americans believe in the virgin birth, while 28% believe in evolution. And I thought, wow, we're still a pretty religious nation. 
And even those that are skeptical of this virgin birth of Jesus would really like to settle this issue once and for all because they know that if it's true that Jesus was born of a virgin, then something big is happening here. Larry King, the famous talk show host who just retired this past week, was once, well, I didn't retire, he's moving on to whatever else. Anyways, the famous talk show host was once asked that if he could select any person across all of history to interview, who would it be? And his answer would be that he'd love to interview Jesus Christ. And when the questioner followed up with, and would, what would you like to ask him, look at what King said. This is so revealing. Give me a click here, guys. He says, I would like to ask him, Jesus, if he was indeed virgin born, he says to answer that question would define history for me. Whoa. Who would you like to interview more than anybody else? Jesus Christ. What do you want to ask him? If he was virgin born, because the answer to that question would define history for me. And folks, King is right. Because if Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin, then God just might be in it, and God just might be up to something, and this just might change everything. And that's exactly what Matthew is trying to tell us here. Notice that when he ends this passage, or go back to our passage here, that when he ends this quote from Isaiah, which is found in Isaiah 7, verse 14, there in verse 23, notice that Matthew then adds, when he says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is right out of Isaiah, that Matthew adds an interpretive comment and says, which means God with us. Do you see that there? Matthew adds that phrase, which means God with us. In other words, Matthew is trying to tell us something very important about this prophecy that when the name would be given Emmanuel, he's saying, don't miss what that name means. It means God with us. In Jesus, this virgin birth baby, God is with us. Now, I want us to wrestle with something for a moment. That statement, God with us, taken by itself, by its very nature, is somewhat debatable and cryptic. It is. I know some of you have seen it for what it is for so long, you don't realize that it might mean other things, but when you read the commentaries, the experts on the Bible, this phrase, God with us, could mean a number of things. So, for instance, it could mean that God's presence is with us in Jesus, just like his presence was with Moses. So you've read the Old Testament, you know that God's presence was with Moses when he was taking them out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. So it could mean that in Jesus, God's presence is with us, kind of like it was with Moses. Or it could mean that God's message is with us. Like with Isaiah and Jeremiah, when they walked this earth, God's message was with them as they spoke to Israel. And so it could mean that in Jesus, God is with us means that his message to us is with us. Or it could even mean that God's leadership is with us. Like when God was with David and his leadership in defeating all the armies of the Philistines at that time. It could mean that God's leadership is with us in Jesus. Are you starting to see? It could mean lots of different things. And so what does it mean when Matthew tells us that God is with us in Jesus? And for the answer to this question, I want you to turn to another gospel writer because Scripture always needs to be taken as a whole and Scripture must always interpret Scripture. I want you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, because John gives us the answer in clear language to what it means when, it says, when Matthew says God is with us. So turn to John, chapter 1, and I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to skip down to verse 14. And as I'm reading this, try to discern the answer to what the biblical writers mean when they say God is with us. 
John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then skip down to verse 14. Here it is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Don't miss this, folks. You have this Word, this distinct person of God who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was literally God, a preexistent person of God, God himself in the form of a living and breathing word. And it tells us here, John tells us, that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what it means when it says God is with us. That the God who existed for all of eternity took on skin and bones and became flesh and dwelt among us. And one of the things that you love about John chapter 1 when you start to dig down at John's wording here is that John is stating this to us in the most blunt and candid way he knows how using first century Greek. In other words, it's interesting. When he says there in verse 14 that he became flesh, he didn't say that he became a man, which would be the Greek word anthropos. No, he didn't say that he took on a body, which would be the Greek word soma, no, he says it in the most blunt and candid way possible. He says that the word became flesh. That word flesh there literally means blood and bones. A raw, rough, breathing, sneezing, tasting, talking, crying, feeling package of blood and bones, a human being. John is being so clear here that the preexistent, creation-producing, all-good God, full of life and eternality, became one of us. He became a human being. It's what theologians would quickly go on to call the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Some of you have heard that phrase over the years, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That word incarnation simply means something of quality or concept becoming concrete and actual. Isn't that interesting? Something of quality or concept, so more esoteric, becoming concrete or actual. That's what it means to be incarnate. And so in this context, it simply means the invisible God becoming visible. The only eternal God becoming a human in the man, Jesus Christ. And so what does Emmanuel, God with us, mean in Matthew? It means that in the man, Jesus Christ, dwells the fullness of God in bodily form. It means that God is now literally with us in Jesus Christ. So it's not just his presence, though his presence is here. It's not just his message, though his message is here. And it's not just his leadership, though his leadership is here. It's way beyond that. It's now God himself literally with us in Jesus Christ. It's the incarnation. And that's what Matthew is getting at here. Now, if you're tracking with me so far, you got to be asking at this point, well, okay, I get that, Jamie. God became a human being in Jesus but how does this change everything? I mean, what does all this mean? Why did he become a human being? Or to put it more in Larry King's language, that what is it that's happening here that could define history for you and for me? 
Five things that I want to share with you this morning and into next week. We're going to look at two of them this morning, and then we're going to look at the other three next week. Five things that this idea of God becoming a human being means for you and for me. Five things that have everything to do with this idea of God with us that can change everything for us. And the first thing is simply this, and that is that he came to do something that we could not do for ourselves. That's the first thing the scriptures will make clear. That he came to do something for you and for me that we couldn't do for ourselves. So look again at Matthew's retelling of this event. And notice with me what it says. Look again at verse 21. This is very revealing. The angel is speaking. And he says, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now here it is. For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Now follow the logic, folks, that leads up to this understanding here in verse 21. And the logic is simply this. Most of us can admit that we are born with an innate knowledge that all is not right on planet Earth, and even more so, we'll eventually even admit that all is not right with us and even in us when it comes to our nature. Have you gotten to that point yet in this world? Where you realize that you're more than just a few mistakes that happen in your life, but there are things that you do, there's things that you say, there's things that your life becomes that are so off from what you'd hoped they would be, they're so off from what you believe God hoped they would be, that you realize something is not right in home. Hopefully you've gotten to that point in life. I spent a lot of my time as a pastor and as a Christian theologian trying to convince people of this truism. I think just living in our own skin should convince us of this truism. I think when we're honest with ourselves, we admit that we're a mess and that we're capable of making things a mess. But to be sure, the greatest way to find out if you're a mess or not is to simply be honest with yourselves when it comes to the Ten Commandments. There's 490 different commandments in the Old Testament. Just take the top 10 and ask yourself, do I live these perfectly or at least in such a way that would really garner me an A or a B? And the reality is, you don't. I love to sit down with somebody at Starbucks and try to show them this. I'll say, okay, let's start with the easy ones. You ever killed anybody? No, good. Thou shalt not murder. You got that one down. Let me ask you a note. You ever committed adultery yet? Well, pastor, yes or no? No. Okay, good. Well, then you got that one down. You haven't cheated on your wife yet. That's good. I said, okay, have you ever coveted anything of your neighbors? What do you mean? Well, it says don't cover your neighbor's ox or animals or cart or maids or manservant or anything like that, which means today you don't cover your neighbor's BMW, Mercedes, addition that they put on their house, the vacation they took last week, the second home that they had. You get the picture. Do you ever covet anything like that from your neighbors? Oh, no one's perfect. I mean, yeah, I guess I have. Okay, X that one out. So now you're two for three, right? So then you say, thou shalt not bear false witness. What does that mean? You never lie. Have you ever told an untruth? Like not even talking about in the last 10 years, like even just in the last year. You ever said anything that was not at all truthful? Well, again, come on, Jamie, no one's, okay, well, let's X that one out. Now you're batting about what, 50%, right? In academic terms, that's an F. And let's continue on, right? <laughs> I mean, really, we want an A or B. We got an F so far. And by the way, we haven't gotten even to the hard ones yet. I mean, honor father and mother. Well, yeah, I do. Okay, can I call them? Can I call them and ask them, have you honored them perfectly all of your life? Well, there was this time when I was 18. Okay, X by that one. <laughs> then you get to the first two commandments, and now you're really in trouble. Because like the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. 
Always put God first. Nothing ever gets in the way between you and God. He always takes first place in your life. Can you say yes to that one? And you're like, well, of course not. I'm only human. I'm fallen. Give me an F. I get it. I get it. The fact that I don't even go on to the other 480 commandments in the Bible. I can't even live the first top 10. You see, that's the point we need to get to, folks, when it comes to understanding us and God that we can't even live the top Ten Commandments. So the Bible simply says it this way, and I know we don't like this word, but it's the word the Bible uses. It says, okay, then you got a sin problem. you got a problem with sin, and that sin separates you from God. It leaves you feeling guilty and distant from Him, and at times even others around you. And all the things that you have tried to remedy your sin problem on your own don't work. So you've ordered a bunch of books off of Amazon.com, a bunch of self-help books that promise to bolster your self-image. They make you feel good for a few days, and then it wears off. And then come New Year's, and comes New Year's. And when New Year's comes, you try all these resolutions to lose weight and to be a nicer person and to not lie so much and all these other things. And by February, where are you? You're fat and you're lying again, right? <laughs> it's true. It's true. And then you say... <laughs> I know. You know, the first service didn't laugh at that. I'm glad you guys laughed at that. It's just too true for them. Anyways, and then you go to church, you know, and again, it's real vogue to go to church in America. You think, well, the self-help books don't help, and, you know, New Year's resolutions help, so I'm going to go to church. And so you go to church, and you sit in a pew, and you feel good for a while. You might even serve a little bit. But, but let's just be honest, folks. It doesn't really deal with the nagging guilt and the burning in our soul. At least it didn't for me for the first 18 years of my life. And so after a while, here's the cool thing. You come to a realization that because we are relatively helpless to do anything about our sin before God, we realize that we need forgiveness more than anything else. Isn't that a cool place to be? Kim and I got there in our marriage after about 10 years. After about 10 years of trying to change each other for the first 10 years of our marriage, we realized that some of the character traits that we were trying to change were there and they were there to stay. And that the only way these two people were ever going to get along was to accept and forgive. Have you gotten there yet in marriage? Hopefully you have. If you haven't, well, good luck because it's hard. And the reality is, is that eventually we get to a point where we realize that forgiveness is what we need more than anything else if we're ever going to change. And God knows that. And that's the whole point of Jesus, is that God says you got a sin problem, you can't remedy it on your own, you need forgiveness, and so I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to forgive you. It's one of the most tender truths in all of the New Testament, that God visited this planet so that you and I might be reconciled to himself. He visited this planet, lived a sinless life in front of us to show that he was God, went to death on a wooden cross, which in Roman culture was a sign of capital punishment, and he did that to bear our sin, the death that we should have died, he died, the penalty that we should have paid, he paid, so that you and I might be brought to God. And he says, the only thing I need from you is for you to reach out to me in a moment of faith and accept my son, Jesus Christ, God come to this earth, and you will experience that forgiveness that I have for you. Don't miss this, folks. He came to do something we couldn't do for ourselves, and that was to reconcile us to God, to bring forgiveness that we so badly needed. You know, there was a great movie that came out about 25 years ago called Uncommon Valor. 
starring Gene Hackman and Robert Stack. It's a story of a group of ex-soldiers that get wind that some of their fallen comrades from Vietnam are still being held captive there even years after the war has ended. And so they mount a high-risk, low-budget special ops mission to head into the heart of northern Vietnam to retrieve these missing POWs. And toward the end of the movie, with a couple of their team members having already given their lives for the mission, they finally get to the only two remaining POWs left. And there's a point in which one of the soldiers bursts into this makeshift bamboo cell, and there he finds an emaciated, scared, all-skin-and-bones POW who's huddled in the corner with his hands covering his face in absolute terror. He'd been there for 20, 20 years or so, and years of starvation and abuse are stamped all over his body and imprinted on the shell of a man. And this big, burly soldier bursts into the, to the cell to save him, and realizing that he's just terrifying this POW, this big, burly, tough soldier stoops down in a moment of tenderness amidst all the war that's going on there, stoops down, and he looks at this man huddled in the corner, and he reaches out his hand, and he says, it's okay, I've come to take you home, soldier. It's okay. I've come to take you home. And, and the guy that's huddled in the corner removes his hands from his face. And you can see that hope is finally written on his face. And he reaches out his hand to this big burly soldier who lifts this skin and bones guy up, puts him on his shoulder, takes him to the helicopter, and back to freedom. You can see the picture there on your right. Uh, folks, try to not miss the spiritual parallel going on in that story with you and me today. The Bible says that our greatest struggle is not a struggle in the flesh, but it's a struggle, listen to this, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, the Bible says that our greatest problem is a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual war that we're in between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And so Jesus Christ came to this earth a place that has literally become a spiritual war zone, and he entered the battle in order to bring all the captives home who will but reach out to him in faith and take him up on his offer to be brought home. Don't miss this. It was the commander-in-chief of the whole army that enters into the combat zone, God coming to this war-torn place to rescue those who want to be rescued. The first and primary reason that Jesus Christ came to this earth, that God visited this planet, was to do something we couldn't do for ourselves, namely to bring us home through forgiveness, through what he has done for us. And I would submit to you that it changes everything. I love how Athanasius of Alexandria said it way back in the fourth century. Look up here on the screen. He says, he, Jesus, became what we are that he might make us what he is. He became what we are that he might make us what he is. Now, you got to be careful. That doesn't mean that he came to make us God. No, he came to make us reconcile with God. You see, God existed for all eternity in a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in mutual, satisfactory relationship. And Jesus came to bring us into that kind of relationship now with God the Father. It's the first lesson that God with us teaches us. Now, though this is the first and primary thing, believe it or not, there is more, much more, to what God with us means. And so the second thing is this, and that is that because Jesus has been here and lived on this planet, he can relate to us, to our struggles, and to our world. This one's powerful. 
He can relate to us, to you and to me, in all of our struggles and in the struggles of this world. Simply put, because he's been here, he knows, and he can relate. Now, to understand this, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you brought one, to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. The author of Hebrews, whom we don't know who it is, ultimately it was God because it's part of the Bible, the author of Hebrews is reflecting on all of Israel's history and even secular history here. And when he finally gets to the time of Jesus, look at the comments that he makes about Jesus and why he came. He says, beginning of verse 14, Hebrews 4, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So don't miss this, folks. We have one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he has been here and he's been tempted in every respect that you and I have, and yet he didn't cave in. Unlike you and I, who cave in regularly to temptation, he experienced every temptation that we experience as a human being, and yet didn't cave in to any of them. He lived a perfect life among us, which I would suggest to you is the best of both worlds. It means that you have a Savior who can identify with you in your most deep struggles and yet also one who can help you. That's the argument the author of Hebrews is making here. He can help you because he didn't cave in. He's not just like you. He's one who was also God. And so he can help you in your time of need. And so been grieving lately? The loss of a loved one, especially during holiday seasons like this? Guess what? Jesus can relate. He lost his friends. He cried. He grieved. He knows the feelings of utter emptiness that it all brings. He gets it. Have you been rejected or hurt by a close friend or family member who you thought would never do such a thing? Jesus knows. He was betrayed by his closest friends at times, and even his family members didn't get him, and there was distance between he and them. Have you ever felt lonely in this life, that profound loneliness that you don't think anybody else could understand? Jesus gets it. Times of utter loneliness in which he longed to be with his Father again. And again, in that trinity, Times so lonely that no one would really understand, so he just retreated to try to connect with his father, and he did connect with his father. You ever feel like life is not fair sometimes? You ever get that feeling? Like the things that are happening to you shouldn't be happening? Guess what? Jesus gets that. I mean, who would argue that the Son of God going to the cross to bear the punishment for our sins that he didn't deserve was fair? There's no justice in that at all. It's pure grace, as we're going to see next year. He gets the fact that you don't like it when life is not fair. Folks, think of anything that you go through. I mean anything. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us. All form of temptation, pain, hurt, struggle, Jesus lived it in his short 33 years on this earth, and he can relate. It's just he didn't succumb to sin in the process, and so he can also help. And the reason that this is so significant, folks, is that all of us here this morning know that there is incredible relational power in the ability to relate to another person. And almost all of us know what it's like to be able to do this. And so if you can get this idea of identifying with another at all and then magnify it a thousand times because this was God who did this for you, you're going to start to get what God with us means. 
You know, one of the most powerful examples of this ability to relate human being to human being that I've observed over the years is when one struggling addict finds another struggling addict. In other words, if you're an alcoholic here this morning, you know that if you're at a Christmas party and you're sipping tonic water and you meet another person who is sipping tonic water, that there's something immediately between the two of you that says, I get you, I totally relate to what your life has been about up to this point. Again, it might be a totally different journey, but you find somebody who has been in addiction that finds somebody else who's been in addiction, and they get it. A few years ago, I read a wonderful story about a pastor in New York City who had an experience one Christmas Eve with his church, a story that I'll never forget. At their 11 p.m. service that evening, there was a recovering alcoholic by the name of Jim who had been sober for just about six months and was attending his church. And this was the first Christmas that he'd had since being sober and since losing his family a few months earlier due to all of his years of alcohol abuse. And while seated in the 11th row waiting for the service to begin that evening, he noticed that there was a family two rows in front of him that seemed all happy and cuddly and just glad to be there on Christmas Eve. And seeing them together just brought all the guilt and the wave of shame upon him in that moment. And he decided that he couldn't handle it, that he needed to go get a drink. And so as he moved from the sanctuary into the atrium before the service began, he ran into his pastor who was on his way into the service. And the pastor said, Jim, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to go get a scotch. And his pastor said, you can't do that. He knew that Jim was a recovering alcoholic. He'd been sober for just about a short period of time. He said, isn't your sponsor available? And Jim replied, well, it's Christmas Eve. My sponsor's in Minnesota. There's nobody who can help me, Pastor. I just came here to, tonight for a word of hope. I ended up sitting behind this family. And if I had my life together, I'd be here with my family. But I don't have my life together. It's no good. I'm hopeless. I'm going to go get a drink. At this point, the pastor was late for being in the service. And so in a panicky move, he just took Jim over and introduced him to a couple other pastors and said, watch him. And already late for the service, he started to go into the sanctuary. And as he's walking to the sanctuary, the pastor breathed a prayer to God in which he said, God, give me a word of hope for Jim and guys like him. He then welcomed everybody to the church that evening. And then after giving a few announcements, he did this. He said, I have one final announcement tonight before we get on. He said, if anybody here is a friend of Bill Wilson, and you know what I mean if you are, could you step out for a moment into the atrium to help a fellow sojourner in the atrium. Uh, Bill Wilson, better known as Bill W., is the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and only a fellow alcoholic would know this. Pastor tells a story that at this point, literally dozens of people in his sanctuary uh, got up. Men, women, college students, I mean, just tons of people got up, and they arose, and they went out to the atrium, where they were all surrounding Jim at that moment, just loving on him, identifying to him, convincing him that it's not a good thing for him to go get a drink on Christmas Eve, but to stay on the straight and narrow. And as the pastor says, and I quote, he says, and there, while I was preaching in the sanctuary about the incarnation of Jesus, the word was becoming flesh in our atrium as someone was experiencing hope. Folks, we all know what it's like to relate. All of us have had experiences where someone has shared his or her story with us and we can identify to the journey that they're on. And it's powerful when it happens. And quite frankly, it changes everything when it happens. And what you need to know here this morning is that more so than anybody else, Jesus Christ 
relates to you. That's what the Bible affirms to you and me. He relates to you. You're not alone in your struggle. The God of the universe came here, and he knows what it is like. And so what does God with us means? It means that he gets you. He's been here, and he understands. And so what does he want from you as a result? I want to wrap up with one thought, then we're going to sing a song and take up our elder's offering. But here's the one thought, and that is that once you get to this point in your understanding of the fact that he came to forgive you, that he came to identify with you, what he wants you to do more than anything else, now don't miss this, is to draw near, is to draw near. Look one last time at Hebrews chapter 4. This time look at verse 16. Here's our response. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It's fascinating. That phrase, draw near there, is actually one Greek word in the original language that the book of Hebrews was written in. The NIV, New International Translation, translates this as approach. It simply has the word picture that at one point you are far away, you are distant, but you make a step to draw closer. And that's exactly what the author is telling us that God wants from us once we get the fact that he is with us, to draw near. It's a faith move. That in your mind and in your heart, amidst all the Christmas busyness, he wants you to draw near. And how do you do that? Give me the last slide here, guys. You do that by prayer, talking to him on a regular basis. You do it by having a devotional life where you hear from him in his word. You read the Bible. You do it through being obedient to him, to following him moment by moment throughout your day. You do it through fellowship and with other believers, not doing this alone, but in a small group. Like how Heibel said it years ago, enlisting in little platoons. That's what we do. And then you do it more than anything just through abiding faith. The faith that you have put in so many other things in this world, you now place in Jesus. You draw near. As he would say so poignantly in John 15, he would say, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Just stay connected. Stay connected to the trunk and you will draw near. So what does God want from you more than anything this Christmas season? He wants you to draw near. He wants you to take all the songs that we're singing or the presents that you give and receive or the Christmas Eve service that we have or church next Sunday or a Bible study that you're in or your own devotional life with him and just knit it all together into drawing near to him. He loves you. He came to forgive you. He identifies with you in everything that you're going through. Draw near. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the scriptures speak so relevantly and clearly to our lives today, that something that happened 2,000 years ago rooted in history, God visiting this planet, can mean so much to us today. Lord, you know one of the things we're going to learn next week when we talk about the ever-presentness of Jesus in our lives is the fact that though he left physically, that he never left spiritually, and that he now inhabits even our bodies, he inhabits our minds and our hearts as we draw near and receive him for who he is. So, Father, I pray that this week as we put those things into practice, as we draw near to you in the midst of anything and everything that we go through, that, God, you might grace us with a deep sense of the forgiveness that you've given us in Christ and even the fact that you can relate. I pray, God, that we might have those two things rooted in our experience and our understanding of you. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Thanks for your grace. Thank you that it's all come wrapped up into us in Christ. And we pray these things in his holy and precious name. Amen.